My name is John Sylvester. I'm Australia's longest serving crime reporter and write a weekly column for The Age. Many of my colleagues have wondered why I've never bothered to move to other areas of the paper. The reason's pretty simple. I've got the best job in journalism, playing cops and robbers and getting paid for it. Over more than 40 years I've covered some of Australia's biggest crimes and met fascinating characters on both sides of the law. In this series, you'll hear from them, the cops and the crooks, telling their stories. Welcome to my world. Welcome to Naked City. Michael Pelimer is a pleasant, somewhat intense man who lives with his loyal wife Tanya, their son Gaius, and their toy poodle Molly in a quiet street in Melbourne's northeast. Micah is an artist devoted to his craft who, for reasons best known to himself, decided to paint me for the Archibald Prize. So painting is all about light on form in space. That's the basic principle of painting what you see. We talked as he sketched. He kept looking at me from different angles as though he was sizing me up. And can I have you just lean forward ever so slightly? Would this be in your way if I tilt it down? So I need to simulate the lighting in the boxing area near the big red punching bag that you were working. Uh, That's definitely the scene that I'm going for. Sometimes I like to do a little boxing, secure in the knowledge that the heavy bag just doesn't hit back. And so we went to a gym for him to have a look around. Yeah, that's what the theme of the, the underlying theme of the painting is gonna be. It's gonna, I'm gonna use the metaphor of the boxing gym to try and tell a little bit of John's story. When he finally got his concept, we went to his studio. While he worked and sketched, I asked him a few questions about his life. It's beyond fascinating. She lived a block away from the World Trade Center. She could see the buildings from her window. When suddenly she hears another plane flying too low and she actually captured the explosion of the second coming through the building. His journey to Melbourne takes three generations. A family that triumphs over crimes against humanity in three continents and includes sliding door moments of romance around the world. We begin in Lithuania in the 1940s. It is the darkest and deepest hole of the Holocaust. My grandmother was, was uh, born and raised in a town called Vilnius in Lithuania. And uh, when the Germans moved into Poland and the Soviets moved the other way, the line was ju- uh, where the Soviets were was just to the west of where my grandmother lived. And so she was just on the right side of the border to miss the beginning of the Holocaust. When Germany invades, there are 210,000 Jews. When they retreat three years later, there are 15,000. So um, her family lived, not not well, but lived under Soviet rule. And then uh, once the Germans started pushing into the Soviet Union, uh, her area was, was overrun. And at age 16, she was put into the concentration camps. And what ended up happening was her mother and her were separated from her father when she first arrived at the camps. And uh, within a couple of weeks, you know, they had these lines where they had to take off all their clothes and run around in a circle. 
And every week, my, mother, my grandmother was lucky enough to be picked. And part of it was that she was an incredibly beautiful woman. Uh, she was very, very good looking. And, and every day she would you know, prick her finger, put the blood on her cheeks, and do all these things to make her complexion look good. And when everybody was getting dysentery, she managed to avoid it the entire time. Smart. She was in there. smart and paranoid about her health, paranoid to a T. And, uh, and she was also very cautious about what she ate. So she would only eat the tiniest amount of food that she could verify was safe to eat. She eats only what she knows is safe and keeps herself well enough to work in the factory and therefore avoids the gas chamber. One of her friends becomes the factory supervisor's mistress. Just before the Germans retreat, the factory supervisor tells his girlfriend that the whole camp is to be liquidated. And then it was getting near the end of the war and the Germans were about to liquidate the camp. And one of the concentration camp guards who uh, was in love with one of the prisoners and, and sleeping with her told this girl, I, I don't want you to die. They're going to liquidate the camp. I want to get you out. And she said, I'm not going without my friends. And my grandmother was her best friend. And so if it wasn't for her sticking her neck out for my grandmother, she never would have survived. He then agrees to smuggle her and her friends, which includes Edith, out. And they survived, and everybody else was consequently killed. He gets them to turn their uniforms inside out and smuggles them out and puts them in a flat. The supervisor would turn up with the tiniest amount of food to keep them alive. Eventually, he stops coming. The reason? They've fled. The starving girls eventually take to the streets, just as the area is liberated by the Allies. The girl who had gotten them out, her uncle, was actually in charge of Jewish relocation in Europe. He was, he was actually in charge of Jewish migration, and he had the ability to help them stay there, or they had a limited num number of people that were being allowed to travel to Palestine. And they, they offered to give my grandmother a home there. They were well-to-do people. And so they, they gave her one of the few passes that were available for her to go to Palestine. Years earlier, a successful Berlin baker sees from the beginning that the Nazis are planning the final solution. He employs two Catholics as delivery men. One of them is beaten to death by the SS. The baker works out that they'll be next. And one day some SS brown shirts went and killed one of his delivery drivers because he worked for a Jew. And that was the sign to my great-grandfather that if they'll kill someone simply for working for a Jew, the direction that this is going is eventually going to lead to all the Jews being killed. And, um, and so he tried to make tracks. And, and at first he tried to find other places in Europe to go. He tried to go to America and no one would take him in. Uh, but they had family who had moved to Palestine back in the 20s. And so he was able to get passage to Palestine. He takes his family and flees to Palestine. After Edith escapes from the concentration camp, she eventually sails to Palestine, where a young man is assigned to greet her. He is the baker's son and would become Micah's grandfather. And when she got off the boat in Palestine, the person that greeted her at the boat was my grandfather. On the other side of the family, in Latvia, there are eight sons and eight daughters. The other side of the family 
was from, I, I believe there was a town called Pilame in, in Latvia. That was where my father's side of the family was from. And my great-grandfather, who was one of eight brothers and eight sisters, and, and he decided that, that they needed to go and that bad things were coming. He saw the writing on the wall. He saw the, the brimmings of revolution, and he thought, this just isn't safe for us anymore. So he got on a cargo ship and went down to South Africa. Well before the Nazi regime of terror, anti-Jewish sentiments are growing in Europe, and the eldest son jumps on a cargo ship to South Africa. And when he got there, he worked day and night until he'd saved up enough money, saved every dollar he made to send back for uh, another brother. And the two of them worked to get two more brothers over, and then the four of them worked to get the four final brothers. And so all eight brothers were able to get down to South Africa. Finally, all the sons are out, and they try and get their eight sisters to join them. None would, because they're all settled in Europe. All are killed in the Holocaust. And they worked to get the sisters down as well, but the sisters had all gotten married by that point and didn't want to leave, and consequently they all died in the Holocaust. Yeah. So that, that whole side of the family was wiped oh. out. And uh, my, grand, my great-grandfather died at the age of 36, uh, probably because of the strain of his life and, yeah. and how hard he worked uh, for the family. And so my grandfather was actually, I believe, 16 when he passed away. And he started to work at, um, at his uncle's firm, which was a guy named Nady Worksman. And then my grandfather worked his way up, eventually became a partner, and they turned um, the law firm into the largest family-owned corporate law firm in South Africa. They're wealthy, but the family that had been oppressed in Europe sees the same racist overtones in apartheid. The lawyer's son is an outspoken critic of the regime that doesn't tolerate outspoken critics. He is Micah's father, David. So my father was raised in this world and, and he had lots of material wealth and comfort, but what he didn't have was a, a system of government that he felt he could live with. He really was opposed to apartheid and the injustice. My grandfather was as well and he used his position in the firm to try to help people quietly in the non-white community to get homes, to get their kids educated. Now my father had a similar instinct but couldn't keep quiet. He couldn't be silent about it. He had to do something, and so he marched and protested. And so the secret police in, in South Africa ended up parking policemen outside my grandparents' home. And uh, one day in the middle of the night, they knocked on the door. My grandfather came to the door and they said, your son is hanging out with all the wrong people. He better do something or he's gonna have trouble, uh, which my grandfather knew meant he's gonna disappear. In that regime, it would have been a one-way ticket to disaster. Instead, his father gave him a one-way ticket to Israel. When the grandfather died, more than 200 coloured people arrived at the funeral. 200 people showed up to his funeral that they just didn't know. And, uh, and they said, who are you? And they said, well, your, your husband, he paid for my kids to go to school. And somebody said, your husband enabled us to have our business or uh, helped us buy our home. And he didn't tell anybody about it. He just did it quietly on his own. They came to pay their respects to a man who'd been secretly helping them for years. In New York, Edith's daughter, Anna, takes a year to study at the Jerusalem University and answers an ad for shared accommodation. My mother uh, was born in Israel, but moved to America when she was about nine. And she'd always wanted to go back and, and be part of Israel and Jerusalem. And uh, the only way she could do that, she was a student at NYU. And, um, 
she ended up taking a summer program, uh, or sorry, a year abroad from NYU in Israel. And when she moved there and was looking for an apartment, she ran into my dad. And she became roommates with my dad because uh, he was going to Hebrew University in Jerusalem. First, my father absolutely hated her, hated her guts. <laughs> he, at first meeting, he thought she was awful, couldn't stand her. <laughs> Within 10 months, they were engaged to be married. Less than a year after they meet, they marry. The couple moved to New Jersey and later set up a law firm in California. Micah is given a career choice. You can be a lawyer or a scientist. So we obviously had very successful lawyers in my family. And we also had on my mother's side, uh, uh, my mother's cousin won a, probably not for recording, won a Nobel Prize in chemistry. And so his name is Rolf Hoffman. And so there was this expectation in my family, you're a doctor, you're a scientist, you're a lawyer. The trouble is, from the age of 17, he knew he wanted to be an artist. Where'd the, where'd the art bug come from? Well, the art bug, it's a good question. So the art bug, I remember being a very small child and climbing the tree in our backyard so that I could look out on everything and being up there and seeing everything in perspective, all the shapes were clear, all the colors were clear, and I was alone with just the vision of the world and I was in love with it. I remember looking at girls who I thought were beautiful and there was like a twinkling glow and just being enraptured with the vision. And if I think where my interest in art really began, it was just with a love of the visual world, a love of perception, a love of beauty. He had to overcome more than his parents' concerns, for in the beginning, he just wasn't very good. Well, I wasn't always good at painting. No, I was actually quite lousy at it. I thought I was a genius, but I was actually pretty awful. So when I, when I first started um, trying to learn, I thought I was brilliant. I thought I knew everything. I actually went to university for two years, actually a year, year and a half. And after a year and a half, I realized I wasn't getting anything I needed to be an artist. So I quit and moved back to Los Angeles with my parents. And when I was there, of course, there was a lot of pressure to stop this art rubbish. And I went to community college to just do figure drawing classes. And when I was there, I ended up meeting a girl, came involved, and it ends up her mother worked at Disney. So uh, her mother knew that I wanted to be an artist and was interested in animation. Um, and in the meantime, I applied to a school called um, CalArts, which is the California Institute of the Arts. It was Disney's art school in Calabasas, in California. And uh, I thought, ah, oh, I'm a shoo-in. I've got this down. So I, I put together all my drawings, sent it to them, and was surprised when I got a rejection letter in the mail. And they said, learn how to draw first. It was, it was pretty intense. Uh, and they said, go study figure drawing and come back to us. So I met, I met Tanya um, at the Art Students League doing a figure drawing class with a teacher named Sherry Camhe on the weekends. I was in this class and I was drawing and I, was, I had leveraged myself to New York because um, I'd originally planned on going to New York. In New York, Melbourne lawyer Tanya Matai is a big cheese in the Big Apple. So I met my wife at the Art Students League of New York. Um, but she's a lawyer. But she's a lawyer. So I, the I, lawyer I, that you didn't become. The lawyer that I didn't become and that my parents always wanted. The work is all consuming with all night cramming considered just part of the job in the cutthroat world of international takeovers. 
she, she worked at a, a New York firm and she lived a block away from the World Trade Center. She could see the buildings from her window. And, and she was at home and she was getting ready when she heard a plane flying way too low. It is a Tuesday around 8.45 a.m. and she's running late for work when she hears a plane fly at an unusually low altitude. Moments later, the American Airlines Boeing 767 plows into the World Trade Center. It is September 11, 2001. And so she stopped and listened and then she heard the explosion. She ran to her window and she could actually see the fireball coming out of the building. So she grabbed her camera when suddenly she hears another plane flying too low and she actually captured the explosion of the second coming through the building. Anyway, at this point, at first she thought maybe it was an accident. By the time the second plane hit, she knew something was seriously wrong. And so she went downstairs to the doorman to ask him if he knew anything about what was happening. She goes downstairs and the doorman says, no, I don't know, but you've got to get out. And she says, no, I've got my wallet upstairs, my phone, I, I can't just go. He says, no, I can't let you back upstairs. I've been told by the police, everybody has to get out. You've got to leave the building and get out of here. So she didn't have her wallet, she didn't have her phone, um, but she had her, she had herself, that was about it. She was dressed and she, she walked outside and she was looking up at the building with everybody else and she thought, this is a bad idea. This is just a bad idea. And so she started walking away from the building and the crowd was being funneled towards Brooklyn. And the doorman directs everyone to head away from the carnage, to head towards Brooklyn. As she goes, she turns around against the flow and heads back. She doesn't want to go to Brooklyn. And she was in the crowd and she got towards the Brooklyn Bridge and she thought, no, I don't want to be in Brooklyn. That's, I don't know anybody in Brooklyn, I don't want to be there. So she turned around and started walking back and right when she got back to her building, the first tower fell. And so that video footage where you see the towers falling and the people running from the buildings, that was her. She was, she was in that crowd running away. She, she actually started running right before the tower fell because she just had an instinct that something was happening. And she ran as fast as she could and she said she could hear behind her this collective gasp, people going <gasps> as, as loud as can be. She, she couldn't believe how loud the gasp was. But everything was silent at the time and all of a sudden there was this huge gasp that filled the air and she just kept running. She was a runner and she just kept running as fast as she could. And she didn't stop until she hit Midtown Manhattan. The, the, the PTSD or the, the impact of that experience stayed with her for years. It was a moment where, you know, had, had she not had more presence of mind, she could have been too close to the building. He is living in Los Angeles and is deeply affected by September 11 and considers giving up art to enlist. I was in Los Angeles. I'd had a couple of misadventures to, to gain artistic knowledge. I was getting a lot of pressure from my parents to just drop this art nonsense and become a lawyer like you always should have. And uh, then September 11th happened. And when September 11th happened, it was such a intense, moving experience uh, that I started to consider, well, if the art thing isn't working out, despite all the, the good fortune and knowledge that I've managed to gain and, and skill, maybe I go join the military and, and just spend some time doing something for my country. And my parents panicked. They, they absolutely panicked. 
uh, and said, no, no, just just wait. Just wait. Don't rush into anything. So art isn't such a bad idea now. Maybe art, maybe art is a possibility. Then his parents think, hey, having a son who's a struggling artist is a lot better than having him as a soldier. Uh, but it, it also drove home to her that, again, if there's anything that you want to do in life, you have to seize it and do it uh, because in a moment, it can all be gone. After September 11, Tanya takes stock of her life. She decides she wants to learn to paint and enrolls in the Art Students League. That's where we met, says Micah. And so she, the one thing she'd always wanted to do was study painting. And so she started taking classes at the Art Students League, where she and I met. Soon they're travelling to the great art cities of Europe. In Florence, she's delighted when a care package arrives from Australia. Her father had included video CDs of Melbourne's AFL games. And she goes, oh, fantastic. All right, stay there. She has me sit down. She brings over the computer. She plops in the disc. And she says, now this is AFL football. I'm going to explain all the rules to you, and you're going to like it. And so I had to sit there while my wife went through, you know, okay, so this is, this is what a mark is. This is a- a- everything about, about football. And she would make me watch game after game after game. And, and she just loved it, which, which was hard to believe because they always lost. They lost every single time, every game they lost. And at the end of it, she was just miserable. You know, you could see that it ruined her day. And yet she couldn't wait for the next disc to come in the mail. This is when she started to convert him. He's become a rusted-on, mad Melbourne supporter. Unfortunately, yeah, I have to admit that I, I've become a Melbourne tragic, and I really wish she'd never done that. <laughs> and over time, I got to understand the rules, and I got to watch it, and I got to suffer through her misery. And then she took me to my first AFL game at the MCG on my first trip to Australia. And I got to watch the demons lose in person. It was incredible. <laughs> uh, but I hadn't yet caught the bug, but I was, I was starting to get a feel for it. You know, I was in the MCG in the crowd, and, and there was a play, and there was what seemed to be a bad call by the umpire. And I suddenly hear behind me this swearing, fucking umpire, blind, and, and going on and on. And I look back, and there's a 70-year-old grandmother behind me red in the face, shaking her fists. And I realized this was a totally different kind of sport. <laughs> this is just totally different. And you would never get that in America. That just would not happen. Yeah, you might see the 20, 30-year-old drunk guy scream, but you would, you would never see the, the otherwise reserved grandmother with the scarf, right, screaming at full-throatedness, you know. So we, we would watch, when we were back in New York, we would, because we, we lived in New York until 2015, we used to sign up for an online service where we could watch the demons. And so every game that came on, whether it was at 11 in the, in the morning or 3 o'clock in the morning, we were watching it. Sometimes we would go to a, a pub called The Australian in Midtown through the middle of the night when, when the finals were on or, or big, big important playoff games, and we would watch it there while eating a, a pie and a sausage roll. In 2015, I moved to Melbourne, and Micah is now an enthusiastic Melbourneite saying it's the best city in the world and the people are so warm and friendly. He loves the little wave motorists give, or they should, if you let them into traffic. Yeah, yeah, the wave. It's, uh, it's something very distinctly Australian. 
And I'm not sure if it's distinctly Victorian, but it, it's definitely distinctly Australian. Um, and, you know, at first I would, I'd be driving down the street and people would be waving at me everywhere. And I thought, I don't, I don't know these people. Why, why are they waving at me? And then my wife explained, it's a courtesy when, when you're driving, if you're gonna let somebody through or they let you through, you, you wave, but you don't really wave. You raise a couple, you raise two fingers from your, from your wheel, right? Because if you wave too high, that, that's a bit strange. So you have to just raise a couple of fingers from the wheel in signal of gratitude. And I actually started to really like it. There's this, there's this common courtesy, there's this engagement with your community. You're driving down the street, there's a moment where it's either you or them, you let them through, they give you a little wave, you wave back. It's such a polite, courteous, wonderful way to live. Back in America, he forgot and started waving to other drivers who were just glare daggers. So when I went to visit my parents in Los Angeles, I'm driving down the street and I face a similar situation where I've got to let somebody through, somebody lets me through, so I wave at them and I see their eyes suddenly look at me, realize they have no idea who I am, but I'm waving at them and start laughing at me. <laughs> yeah, because it's just not something you do. <laughs> you just don't do it. In Los Angeles, you don't make eye contact across cars, right? It's actually a real thing. In Los Angeles, when you live there, you don't make eye contact across cars. You don't know who that person is, and you don't know if they've got a gun in their car, right? They may think if you're looking at them that you know them, or you're engaging with them, or you're disrespecting them, or who knows, there's all sorts of crazies. That was a lapse in judgment. It could get you shot. Sadly, the portrait didn't make the Archibald finals, which is clearly an act of lunacy. This means the Archibald judges now join those from the Walkleys and the Quills who conspire against me, basically, on a yearly basis. I've considered calling on the tens of thousands of Naked City podcast listeners to rise up as one in a silent protest, but alas, this would breach COVID restrictions. Suffice to say the judges couldn't pick the difference between a masterpiece and a plate of macaroni. Naked City is brought to you by The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Subscriptions power our newsroom. So to support independent journalism, consider subscribing to the Sydney Morning Herald or the age. This episode was produced and edited by Anu the Axe Hasbolt. It was mixed by Cool Hand Cormac Lally. Audio is by the Age's Gun Nicole Purcell. Archives by Nine and 3AW. Tom McKendrick is head of audio. I'm John Sylvester. Thanks for listening.